Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott, one of the members of the pastoral team, and uh, Paul is away for the weekend. He and his wife are celebrating number 50, not anniversary, okay? Just want to make sure that's clear. We don't want to spread that sort of rumor. No, their 50th birthday, which is pretty exciting. So it's a Disney cruise. I'm sure they'll come back with tons of stories for you. Uh, but for, for us today, it's my privilege to be able to open up God's Word uh, with you. And uh, just as Rob was mentioning, obviously March is a great month, um, not just because of new life and you know, the spring coming in, but for us in the steak household, it's also a chance for us to be able to celebrate birthdays. So all three of our girls have birthdays in March. Yesterday we had a Captain America-themed party for Ruth Ann. A couple weeks from now we have um, Hannah's birthday. She's turning 13, and then Abigail's turning sweet 16 at the end of the month, which is pretty crazy. And so March has always been like a favorite month of mine, obviously to be able to celebrate our kids' birthdays. But um, what I didn't expect was the previous month would prepare me for March. And so uh, I want to talk to you just briefly about what we do in February for Valentine's Day. And you guys might be like, oh, Scott's going to talk about Valentine's Day. Um, I do think it's great to be romantic in Valentine's Day. Absolutely. Uh, Julie and I, we go out for a date. But on Valentine's Day, actually, we do something together as a family. It's become a tradition for us. And so I thought I would just share it with you a little bit this morning. So we got a picture here. There's us. A little bit blurry there, but um, we have a dinner it's hard to see, but we have crystal glasses. We have china. Um, we drink some bubbly. The kids, of course, are non-alcoholic. And uh, also enjoy some chocolate-covered strawberries and just have a great meal together. Um, but the thing that is most, I enjoy the most, as you can see here, we all make homemade valentines. And uh, so these aren't just like valentines you purchase and then you write your name on the back. These are actually like homemade valentines. And so I thought I would share with you a few of them of what's going on. So here's Ruth Ann's. You can't read it very well yet, but it says that mom, she said to mom, she says, you are, you are better than sliced bread, okay? So there you go. There's one from Abigail towards Josiah Yoda. For those of Star Wars fans, Yoda best bro. Um, there's one to me, I love you gnome matter what. And then here's a couple from Hannah. This is to Abigail. That is actually, she drew, she drew that. That's Hannah and Abigail, side by side or miles apart. Sisters will always be connected by the heart. And then here's another one towards me from Hannah. I'm so glad I found you with a stinky sock. Isn't that great? But here's my favorite. This is my favorite, of course, for my husband, with love on Valentine's Day. And then on the back, just kidding, it's your son, Josiah. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> So we, uh, we have lots of fun on Valentine's Day. Uh, it's just a great chance to be able to celebrate love. And why do I mention this? You know, we're talking about Valentine's Day in March. Well, here's the deal. The last three weeks, we have been walking through the book of Jude. And this has been calling us towards being strong in our faith, to fight against apostasy, to protect ourselves from the temptation to fall away from the Lord by, as Pastor Paul last week talked about, being in the Word, being in prayer, and being in community. In other words, it is a call for us to contend, to be courageous, and to be full of conviction. But tucked away in this little letter, uh, there is a word that's mentioned four times and a lot of times it might be passed away as insignificant or unimportant. But Jude, I think, is very intentional by using this word. He wants to make it abundantly clear of who we are in Christ and how it helps us to persevere in our faith. Jude calls the recipients of his letter 
beloved, the ones loved by God. He mentions it four times in this letter, and what's Jude getting at? Why does he mention this word over and over again? Well, I think in times of suffering, in times of hardship, in times of difficulty, in times of temptation, and where where people around us are leaving the faith, we might be tempted to think that God has forgotten us, that God has not come through for us, that we're on our own, or worse yet, that God is punishing us. And so Jude wants us to be reminded above all else, no, you are the beloved ones. And beloved is not just something that Jude talks about. It's actually mentioned 53 times in the New Testament. So this is not just something for Jude. This is something for all of the apostles. They want to ground us in the love of God. And so last week we talked about keeping ourselves in the love of God, and that's our efforts. But now I want us to talk about what is God's movement towards us as his loved ones. Before I do that, I just want to ask you a question. When you think about how God relates to you, what words come to mind? When you think about your core identity, who you are in relation to God, what word would you use? Would you say, I am the beloved? Or um, would you maybe use another word in there? Or even if you would say, I'm the beloved, would you be able to articulate what it means to be loved by God? So here's my goal this morning. I want for God to open up our eyes to see who we truly are in relationship with him. I'd love for us to be able to see his glory and his character revealed to us through his word. And so in order for us to do that, we're actually going to turn to the Old Testament. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 34. And so as y'all are turning there, uh, here's the scene. After being rescued out of slavery by God. God has led the Israelites to Mount Sinai, and here he's going to ratify his covenant with his people. And Moses has gone on behalf of his people to the top of Mount Sinai to be with God and receive instructions for how the people are to relate to God. In essence, this is kind of like a wedding, And so the idea here is that God is making his commitments to his people, and in response, the people are saying, yes, we do. We will respond in kind towards you. We will be faithful to you. But as you know, uh, while Moses is up on the mountain, down below, the people have grown impatient. And they have, in their waiting, turned back to Egypt in their hearts. They moved away from the God who has rescued them out of slavery, and so they turned to drinking and carousing and sexual immorality and false worship. Idol worship is how they respond to the pursuit of God. In essence, they commit adultery on their wedding night. And so Moses goes down on behalf of God. God is angry, right? He jealously longs for his people to be completely in completely devoted to him, and yet they are not. He wants their whole hearts, and yet they are stiff-necked, half-hearted creatures towards him. And so on behalf of God, Moses throws down the tablets as if to say, hey, this relationship deserves to be finished. You've already broken my trust. And he then disciplines his people in the chapter 32 with a plague, and the people respond in mourning and crying out for the mercy of God. And so Moses goes back up on top of the mountain to God. 
He stands on behalf of his people, foreshadowing Christ himself as, an, as a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. And Moses says, God, will you please have us as your people? I know we've messed up, but we are your people. Will you please keep your promises and lead us? And then Moses asks, and God, will you show me your glory? God responds, Moses, I can't show you all of my glory. That would destroy you. But I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you, and then I'll pass, pass beside you. And so now I'd like for you to stand and read with me what happens in Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 9. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended on the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Let's pray. God, this is who you are. And yet, if we're honest, there's a lot of times we don't see you that way. Help us today to see your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated, and as you do, today's sermon is entitled, The Beloved of God. The Beloved of God. And we're really going to walk through this declaration that God makes to Moses about who he is and how he interacts with his people. And we're actually going to look at these attributes of God in, in pairs. We're going to put them together. And after each set, I just want to ask you a, a couple of diagnostic questions to really examine your heart and to what extent you are and I am living as the beloved. And so here's the big idea. Here's the big idea for this morning. God has a special relationship with his beloved. It's a love that is steadfast and faithful, merciful and gracious, and slow to anger and forgiving. So you see those pairs, steadfast and faithful, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and forgiving. So first, God's love for his beloved is steadfast and faithful. I'm actually going to start in the middle of this uh, declaration about who God is with the phrase steadfast love. It provides the foundation. It is like the bottom of the triangle kind of moving up. So God's steadfast love and faithfulness 
is what everything else moves up from, his mercy and his grace, his being slow to anger and forgiveness towards his people. And God uses this phrase twice in a row. He says, I am I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and I keep steadfast love for thousands. So what is the steadfast love? You guys may be familiar with a phrase. It's called hesed. It's a Hebrew word that can be translated a number of different ways. Loving kindness, mercy, goodness, kindness, loyalty, or steadfast love. It's used 248 times in the Old Testament, and over and over, more than any other word, it's referring to God's relationship with his people. And it goes along with the phrase that God uses at the beginning, where he says, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh. This is, a, this is saying, I am a, in relationship to my people, full of steadfast love towards them. It's a different sort of love. It's a particular type of love that God has for his people than he just has for all of creation. And so here's a a few ways to define this this chesed love. Let's look up here on the screen. So Gary Brashear says it's God's consistent, ever-faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God. William Vine says it's God's undeserved, selective affection by which he binds himself to his people. Or if you guys have the Jesus Storybook Bible, one of my favorite children's books, it's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So when God says that he loves his people, he's saying, my love for you is steadfast. I'm not going anywhere. I am with you to the end. I am not going to give up on my beloved. And, and it's, it's really ironic, isn't it, that it's right after the Israelites turn away from God that God declares this to his people. This is marriage covenant sort of language that God has for his people. Now, we're pretty familiar with contracts. It's, a lot of times I operate this way in my relationships if I'm not careful. Uh, and we probably do this a lot of times. Certainly the world does it. It's, a, it's what comes natural to us. If you do this for me, then I will do this for you. But as soon as you upset me or you don't meet my expectations, well, I'm out. That's how we live in contractual sort of world. But that's not the way that God relates to his people. Ralph Davis puts it this way. God's chesed love is not merely love, but loyal love. It's not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. God will treat his beloved with devoted love. And we started a, a marriage ministry um, this spring as a kind of a, a, a pilot called Reengage, um, And it's, it's something that we, uh, we're, we're planning on launching in the fall, uh, kind of in earnest. Uh, and it's really intended for all sorts of married couples. So whether you're newly married or, or married for a while, whether you've got a, a pretty good marriage or you're struggling in marriage, whether you're an eight and want to move to a nine or you're two and you want to move to a three or a four, it's really intended for all types of, of marriages. And one of the illustrations that we use and re-engage has to do with commitment or covenant. And the idea is this, it's marriage is like standing in a room with your spouse and it has several open doors that you can walk out of rather than choosing to commit to your marriage. And so one door might be divorce or separation. Another door might be, you know, staying busy at work or with your kids' activities so you won't 
um, deal with the issues in your marriage. Or maybe another door might be um, just living together as undivorced sort of roommates. Just live in parallel lives, not interacting with one another. And so we say steadfast covenantal love is shutting and locking all the doors and saying, I am staying right here with you no matter what. It's telling your spouse that you won't leave, that you won't become preoccupied or apathetic, and that you're going to work on your challenges no matter what. That is the type of love that God has towards his people. God is relating to his people who rebel against him and is saying, I will be with you. I'm not leaving you. Even though you're undeserving of my protection, of my love, of my provision, I am not walking out the door on my people. That's God's steadfast love. And he combines that with his faithfulness. He says, I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This, this is, God is dependable. He's trustworthy. His promises are true, and they can be depended upon. His character never changes. When God instructs Moses to come back up on the mountain, he doesn't change his laws. He says, no, these laws are, are binding. These are, this is who I am. I'm going to rewrite the Ten Commandments again because this is who I am and this is how you can enjoy a relationship with me. God says, I am faithful. I am dependable. My truth is going to endure forever. You can always depend on me. You can trust in my promises. My word is as sure as my character. What I say, I will do. I will come through for my people again and again and again and again. So as we conclude this section, talking about God's steadfast love and faithfulness, let me just ask you a few questions. Number one, are you able to rest in God's steadfast love for you? Or are you concerned that as soon as you mess up, that God is going to leave you? What about in your relationships? Are you committed to those relationships, or are you tempted to run out on people as soon as they mess up towards you? It might be a reflection of your understanding of steadfast love. What about this? Do you trust in God's word and his promises that they are for you? Or are you afraid that God is going to fail you and not come through for you? God relates to his beloved with steadfast love and faithfulness. Second, God is merciful and gracious towards his beloved. It says it here, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. These two words go hand in hand oftentimes in both the Old and the New Testament. The Hebrew word for merciful can be translated compassion or tender affection. R.B. Griddlestone, this is the way he describes it. He says, a deep and tender feeling of compassion, particularly aroused by the sight of weakness or suffering in those that are dear to us or need our help. It's used 12 times in the Old Testament to describe God's relationship with his people, and it points to the strong bond that he has with them. It's the idea of a parenting sort of love. And you guys know this, if you're parents, you just have this tender affection for your people. You'll do whatever you can for your children. And that's the way God says that he is towards his people. 
Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion, or it can be translated mercy to his children. So the Lord shows compassion or mercy towards those who fear him. It was no doubt compassion that moved God when he heard the cries of his people crying out when they were enslaved. And he says, I will rescue you. I will deliver you. God moves towards the weak and the needy with affection. He says, my mercies are new every morning. And you are weak and needy and every day you need my mercy. Isaiah 42.3 says this, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Do you see God relating to you in this way? When you are weak and tired, do you see him moving towards you with tender affection and compassion and mercy? Or are you afraid that God is going to crush you when you're down and out? God does not treat his beloved that way. Think of Jesus in Matthew 9, 36. It says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they were fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep who had no shepherd. God is moved with compassion and mercy towards his beloved. A.W. Tozer, he says this, When we are feeling weak and needy, this is what he says. He says, we need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He is nearer than our own soul, closer than our most secret thoughts. That is God's move towards his beloved, tender affection, and that is accompanied with gracious. The word gracious here depicts a heartfelt response by someone to give to a person in need, although they are undeserving of it. So grace is a gift, as we know. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unearned. And you can think of it this way. Compassion or mercy is the feeling of God, the tender affection of God that moves him to action, and then grace is the supply. But we don't deserve it. God gives freely to his beloved, his unmerited favor. It's like an inexhaustible spring that just keeps oozing out, over and over and over and over again, his love and his faithfulness to his people. A little later, what does it say? It says he's abounding in steadfast love. That means the resources of his love are not limited. They're of endless supply. He's not measured in his grace. He's boundless in his grace. Vast as the ocean, higher than the highest heaven. That is God's steadfast love toward his people. Fuller and fuller and fuller of grace is what he intends for us to receive. You know, back in college, um, I had an opportunity to go to London for a couple weeks. We did an art and drama appreciation class. And so during the day, we'd go to museums and and look at all this amazing artwork. And in the evenings, I got to go to several plays um, and musicals. And so Peter Pan and Amadeus and Into the Woods, uh, lots of fun, lots of fun stuff we got to see. The thing that I wasn't surprised, I wasn't, wasn't expecting and I was surprised by and actually moved in when I'm watching this is something that, that I wasn't familiar with at all. Now, you guys are probably familiar with it now, but I wasn't at the time. It's Les Mis. So Victor Hugo's um, story of Jean Valjean, who is just an awful dude, and he finally gets released from prison, and he's been knocking on doors trying to ask for help, and no one will help him. None at all. He knocks down every single door except for the door to the church. He shakes his fist defiantly at the church. And finally he goes and he, 
He, he lays down on a stone bench underneath the uh, underneath sky that's full of cold air by himself. And then this church door opens up, and there's an elderly woman who, who peeks her head out and motions to Jean Valjean and points him to one more door to knock at. And if you're familiar with the story, this small house represents a door to someone who was very uh, well-known in the community, but John didn't know who he was. And so he walks in, and immediately he's, he's entertained with this warm, cooked supper. He's given, he's given a bed and sheets that are clean. And John, in response, he says, oh, what? I'm going to have supper and a bed with clean sheets? I haven't, I haven't slept on a mattress in 19 years. And he says, pardon me, what's your name? Are you the innkeeper? He, didn't, he couldn't imagine that this is actually the owner of the house. And the host is the Bishop of Digny. And he says, this is not my house, though. This is the house of, G- of Jesus Christ. It's a refuge for the outcast. And as you know later, though, Jean Valjean, he takes advantage of this grace that he's been bestowed. And he, he steals um, the, the candlesticks that are, uh, that are priceless. And he, and he runs out with them. And he's caught later on, and he's brought back before the bishop. And the bishop responds, what? What does he say? He says, hey, I'm not going to charge him with anything. In fact, those are candlesticks that I gave to him. Enjoy, Jean Valjean. Enjoy the grace of God. When I saw that, I was just overwhelmed by it because that was not the relate that I was relating to God. That it, it was foreign to me. I was relating to him more in a, in a contract, right? God would bestow his grace upon me in that way. It was just so foreign to me. And yet, if you're, not, if you're like me, right, it just, that, that call for grace just beckons us. I want that grace. We hunger for it. And here's what we need to hear. We need to let it soak in that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. And there's nothing that we can do to make God love us less. This is how he relates to the beloved. Here's a few questions for you. When you are weak and tired, do you feel distant from the Lord and lack intimacy with him? Or do you run towards your father? And see him moving towards you with tender affection and compassion. Do you labor under a sense of obligation, working hard to please God by yourself? Or do you run to him and ask him for his help and grace to carry you through each day? Do you rest on your own laurels and compare yourselves often to others and either feel good about yourself or not so good about yourself? Or do you stand confidently in the grace of God? And get your self-worth from God's love for you. For Oaks, the Lord is gracious and merciful towards his beloved. Last but not least, he is slow to anger and forgiving towards his beloved. First, he's slow to anger. That's what it says here. God is patient toward us even when our sin warrants righteous anger. The expression in the original language is this word, it's a combination of two words, long and nose. And you're like, what? Well, in the Hebrew, the idea here was that uh, when you would get angry, your nose would light up red, right? Just like Rudolph. Uh, And your whole face would redden. It would appear to burn with anger. Friends, God's face does not redden quickly. He has a long nose. 
He looks kindly towards his wayward children, allowing plenty of time for their repentance. And when God finally does show his anger, it's, it's measured. He gives plenty of people opportunity to repent. He's not impulsive or unjust. And so anger here equals displeasure. God is certainly displeased about the way that we fall away from him. We turn away from him in our sin. But he's a father who disciplines us with his love. This is not wrath. We'll talk about that in a minute. This is God's disposition towards us when he gets upset with us, when he's displeased with us. But he's slow to anger. He gives us plenty of opportunity. He's patient with us. He's long-suffering. That means he suffers long with his people whenever they mess up. He takes a, a long, deep breath when he sees us, and he goes, he doesn't pour out angry, anger towards us. He's, he's gracious and kind towards us. That's what God is. He's slow to anger, but he is also quick to forgive. And not just some kinds of sin. What does it say? It says it forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. In other words, those are three Hebrew words, the only three Hebrew words for sin. In other words, all types of sin. God forgives. Now you might be thinking, well, you don't know. You don't know what I've done. I want you to submit your opinions and your feelings to God. And what God's word says, he says, I I'm quick to forgive those who confess their sin to me. But you don't know, Scott. You don't know the things that I've kept secret for a long time. Let me tell you, friend, God knows. And he says, I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. D.L. Moody says, the voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. How long and how far can God's voice be heard? What does it say? It says that he, he pours out this sort of forgiveness to the thousands, or it would also be said to the thousand generations. If we confess our sin, it means that his forgiveness is for us today, just as it was for the Israelites way back then. How is this possible? One word, Jesus. Jesus. Listen to the sweet words of Hebrews 9. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus takes upon the wrath of God against sin. He takes upon himself the punishment that the Israelites and we so rightfully deserve. This is, head, this is steadfast, hesed sort of love that compels him to the cross. And while forgiveness is freely given to us, it is of great cost to Jesus Christ. You know, there's a song that uh, is played on the radio uh, you might be familiar with it. It's called Reckless Love. And uh, it gets a bad rap because of that word reckless. Um, but I want to just read to you the chorus and just talk about it for a minute. It says, Oh, the overwhelming, 
never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And talking about that song, Corey Asbury says this. He says, when I use the phrase, the reckless love of God, I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. I am, however, saying that the way he loves is in many regards quite so. His love caused him to leave heaven for you. His love doesn't consider him first. God's love in many ways does not make sense to us. His forgiveness does not make sense to us. It appears on the face value reckless. Think about Jesus on the cross. He's got two men. They both are rightfully deserving of death. One man just yells at him and makes fun of him. And the other man looks at Jesus and says, Hey, when you, will you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And what does Jesus say? This man hasn't done anything right. God says to him, Truly today you will be with me in paradise. This, this, this appears reckless until we see Jesus taking upon himself the punishment that we so rightfully deserve. And just to make sure that we're, we're in theological alignment, um, Tim Keller, he talks about God's love and forgiveness for his people in this way in his book, Prodigal God, which I highly commend to you. He says, Jesus is showing us the God of great expenditure who is nothing if not prodigal toward us. That means he just keeps pouring out love and grace and forgiveness over and over and over again toward his children. God's reckless grace is our greatest hope. I'm not saying that God's grace in and of itself is reckless. It is purposeful. It, is, it, it is, has a great purpose in mind to it. He's not just cavalier. He's, he's being purposeful towards his beloved. He's saying, I'm just going to pour out over and over and over again my grace, my mercy, my love, my forgiveness towards my people. But at the end of this passage, and this is really important, at the end of this passage, there's a warning. God says he will by no means clear the guilty. While God is full of compassion and grace, while he's slow to anger and quick to forgive, he does not allow unrepentant sinners to go unpunished. There always will be coming a day of reckoning. For many Israelites, they presumed upon the grace and the love of God. They just assumed, oh yeah, I can do whatever I want. But as we know, it's only those who repent who are truly the beloved of God. John Piper says this. He says, God holds his wrath with the reins of his love. He's holding his wrath against those who are sinning against him, giving them an opportunity to turn from their sin and to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, as the wrath bearer. And so if you have not currently trusted in Jesus, don't presume upon God's grace and his mercy for you. Instead, hold on to God's grace and his mercy for you and trust in Jesus Christ today. And for those of you who are, are the beloved, I just encourage you to marvel at his love for you. You might be having that, that phrase, but, but Scott, I know I'm forgiven, but, and then fill in the blank, that particular area of sin that you just feel like God can't forgive you or God won't forgive you. Look to Jesus and see him holding out his arms to you saying, 
I freely forgive you. I faithfully forgive you. I forever forgive you. I've borne your sin upon the cross. After such an amazing display of God's glory, how does Moses respond? Look at verse 8 again. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And then he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So how does Moses respond? He responds by worship and thanksgiving and gratitude and just adoration. He beholds the glory of the Lord. And then what does he do? He says, God, give us more. We're still a stiff-necked people. We're still going to mess up. So give us more of that grace. Give us more of that love. Give us more of that forgiveness. Give us more of that kindness. Please forgive and pardon our iniquity and our sin. And then, look at this. Take us for your inheritance, your people, your beloved ones. Just as Moses grabbed hold of God's character for him and for his people. This has been the refrain of the believers over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, in the midst of all of his lamenting in in chapter 3, he says, hey, I've got this one hope. And then he quotes this verse. He says, God, you're, you're steadfast in your mercy. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness towards me. That's the only hope that I've got. Joel, in the same way in Joel chapter 2, he says, Israelites, God is merciful. He's gracious. He's full of steadfast love towards you. Turn from your sin. Trust in this God. Same thing in David. David in Psalm 86 is the same thing. Nehemiah 9, another great passage, over and over. This is the constant refrain of God's people. They just keep holding on to the character of God. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme. We'll conclude with this in 2 Corinthians 3. So he's picking up on this theme. Right after Moses comes down off the mountain, he has to put up a a veil because his face is shining so much. And in the Old Covenant, his face over time would, would, would start to dissipate. It was this idea that that over time there's this dissipation of God's glory. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, when Jesus comes, God's glory is experienced and displayed over and over and over again. And so this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. We are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, the invitation that the Apostle Paul gives to us, the invitation that the Apostle Jude gives to us, is to behold the glory of Jesus. To see who he is for us. And as we behold his glory, we become more transformed into his likeness every single day. So as we see his glory, the Spirit helps us to become full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Helps us to become full of grace and mercy. Helps us to become slow to anger and full of forgiveness towards those who has hurt us. 
so that we can be the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. So today I invite you to dwell on the glory of the Lord and not only marvel at him, but become more like him. You know, Jack Miller, uh, he's a great author that I, I highly commend to you. Um, he once had a roadblock in ministry. He was really discouraged, really downcast. And so he took his family on a retreat. And while there, God began to reveal to him that he'd been operating more as an orphan than as a son, one who worked for God's love rather than received God's love. And so from that time forward, for the next 20 years, the rest of his ministry, he came back more, more concerned than ever that the people of God get this idea that God is full of love towards them. And this is what he said. This is why he'll always conclude his message. He would say this. He would say, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. You are the beloved of God. Let's pray.